So hello there, and welcome to another episode of the Philosophical Disquisitions podcast. In this episode, I'll be chatting to Nikita Agarwal. Nikita is a DPhil candidate at the Faculty of Law at Oxford and a research associate at the Oxford Internet Institute's Digital Ethics Lab. Her research examines the legal and ethical challenges arising from emerging data-driven technologies, with a particular focus on machine learning in consumer lending. Prior to entering academia, Nikita was an attorney in the legal department of the International Monetary Fund, where she advised on financial sector law reform in the euro area, and she has worked extensively on initiatives to reform the legal and policy frameworks for sovereign debt restructuring. So we chat in this particular episode about the legal and regulatory aspects of algorithmic governance in the world of consumer lending, and we also then look at problems arising from big tech platforms if they happen to collapse or go down, and also the phenomenon of artificial intelligence-related crime. So it's a pretty interesting and diverse set of topics that we cover, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So, Nikita, your research focuses on the legal and regulatory aspects of algorithmic governance and AI. And you focus in particular on the impact of these technologies in consumer credit markets, but you've written about some other important related topics as well. So in this conversation, I thought we might try to range somewhat broadly over some of the topics that have come up in your recent research papers, starting with the impact of AI on consumer credit markets, but also looking at the problems that arise when big tech platforms go down and the challenges of AI crime. So let's start with the impact of AI on consumer credit markets. Uh, just a quick terminological question at the outset. You know, what do we mean by a consumer credit market? What kinds of credit are covered? Is it mortgages, car loans, that kind of thing? Or you know, what, what gets included within the scope of that term? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, consumer credit covers quite a bit um, from actual lending to credit-related activities, so like debt advice um, and so on. Um, Within consumer credit, you have different types. So you uh, cited uh, secured forms of consumer credit, um, lending that's secured on a house or on a car. Um, And then there's also unsecured lending. So uh, like a a personal loan, um, credit card lending, overdraft. I tend to focus on the latter category, but actually a lot of the um, empirical studies or the the sort of ones available tend to be done on um, sort of secured markets because there's just more data for regulatory purposes, particularly mortgages. Okay, so one thing you talk about in your work is the increasing digitization, datafication, and disintermediation of consumer credit markets. Uh, maybe you could help explain what that means. If you want to take those terms one by one, you can, or however is most convenient to explaining that concept or that idea. Certainly. Um, so the the current era, if you like, in fintech, um, I say I'd say is characterized by three. Um, interrelated socio-technical trends. Uh, and as you said, these are uh, dig- digitization, datafication, and disintermediation. Um, I think these trends are generally changing financial markets and consumer credit markets specifically, which is what I focus on. Um, and within that, you know, within consumer credit markets, we could perhaps refer to this as fintech credit. Um, so, so as you said, so as you asked, what do I mean by each of these trends? Well, digitization describes the shift from analog to digital technology in consumer credit markets. Um, 
this trend has, of course, been in motion for a long time. Um, so whether that's due to the invention of magnetic stripe technology for credit cards, computing, um, so on. Um, so clearly, this isn't a new phenomenon. And um, but what we've what we've witnessed uh, in the last 20 years, um, sort of a progressive acceleration in the digitization of financial markets, particularly with the wider diffusion of the internet, uh, mobile and cloud computing. Um, you know, now you can take out a loan or transfer money using little more than an app on your phone. Um, so that's digitization. Um, datafication is is very much interrelated with um, with the others, and particularly digitization. But by this, I mean the sort of increasing reliance on data and data-driven computational methods in financial decision making, um, and particularly progress in machine learning. Um, you know, both due to sort of theoretical advances in ML methods, but also because there's more data available and more infrastructure, better infrastructure for processing and storing that data has meant an increased datification of you know, consumer credit amongst other um, uh, financial markets. Um, and then disintermediation. Um, so I use this term, I would say probably a bit colloquially, there is a technical meaning of this. But what I mean is a couple of things. One is the displacement of traditional financial intermediaries such as banks by um, technology-led peer-to-peer lending platforms. And this has been um, a trend that started sort of, you know, early 2000s. Um, it took sort of, I think, um, picked up following the uh, financial crisis in 2008. Um, but more broadly, I'm, I'm also referring to the disruption of consumer credit markets due to technological mediation, uh, and particularly digital data-driven technology. Um, consumer credit markets are increasingly mediated by digital data-driven technology, and more recently by um, big tech companies like Apple um, and Amazon. Yeah, because they're offering their own forms of, of credit um, to consumers and credit cards and things like that, right? Exactly. Yeah. So there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask just about the, some of the kind of technological applications here. I guess the one that's attracted most of the attention in the scholarly debate, at least from what I've read, is the use of credit scoring algorithms. Uh, maybe we could start by discussing what they are and how they work. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so I think I think it's important to note at the outset that um, even though I've called it, I call this algorithmic credit scoring and credit scoring gets a lot of attention, as you said, um, it, sort of it's not new. Um, uh, it's just the latest. It's the latest phase in a longer trend, a uh, longer term trend of increasingly risk based, standardized, and computerized um, credit assessment and underwriting. So, in theory, technically credit scoring has been algorithmic for almost 100 years. And I don't just mean kind of like biological algorithms, but, um, you know, um, kind of rule, there are, they've, they've been, uh, the, the credit um, decision-making process has been boiled down into kind of um, standardized rules and then um, more recently computerized. But um, that's just by way of background. Um, I think there are two, um, like, key dimensions of this latest phase of algorithmic credit scoring. One is the much larger um, volume and variety of data that are used in consumer credit scoring. Um, so it's often called alternative data, which means both non-credit um, financial data. So typically um, the, the credit data, like how you your you know, how you've dealt with credit in the past, debt in the past, your account transaction data would be a very important um, input to the credit score, the credit um, 
credit decision. Um, but increasingly, we're using more types of non-credit financial data, say mobile and you know rental payments, which are also now on our statutory credit reports, um, or at least rental and utility payments are. Um, and then non-financial credit um, data altogether, so like social behavioral data, um, you know how your social media activity or um, uh, your you know online browsing activity, etc. Um, and then the second dimension um, of this latest phase of algorithmic credit scoring is the use of more sophisticated techniques to analyze those data. And I'm particularly interested um, and, and referring to uh, machine learning methods. Um, and again, a progression because you know, sort of older sort of statistical approaches to credit scoring use simpler forms of machine learning. But now we're looking at more complex forms that could potentially unearth uh, more complex patterns that would be hard, like harder to um, anticipate. Yeah, but just on the first of those dimensions, I think something you mentioned in something that you wrote is that all data is credit data. So we kind of got a sense of that from the use of you know, social media data or, I guess, other non-credit financial information about people. Why, why are those forms of data being used? What are they supposed to be indicative of? Like, how does my social media use tell people anything about my creditworthiness? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so all, so all data and credit, so credit data is um, a quote from the I think, former CIO of um, Google who now runs Zest Finance, which is sort of a pioneer in this area in terms of using alternative data for uh, credit scoring. Um, and I think, I mean, there's a couple of pieces to this. One is that not all borrowers, not all consumers have enough of the traditional quote unquote credit data. So that might be because they've never taken out a loan, so they have no credit history, um, that's le- it's important, but less important in this country than it is, for example, in the U.S., where credit history is incredibly important for for, for getting um, taking for getting credit and getting it on, at a good rate. Um, so you might be somebody who would be called a thin file or a no file borrower, which means you don't have traditional data, and so the system um, thinks you are a bad you're a bad um, risk or you're a, you know a high credit risk and gives you either you know an expensive loan or, or for certain uh, lenders they deny you altogether. Um, but that might not be reflecting in reality, it just reflects the lack of information. So that's one example. But then the other example, the other sort of category is that actually um, some of the alternative data can um, reveal more about a uh, person's credit risk and affordability, which is sort of the two components of credit worthiness in this country, at least. Um, than traditional traditional data might. Uh, I've, at least anecdotally, I've definitely heard um, some of the alternative lenders say that you know if they were able to, and it was sort of accepted to use all of a person's social media activity, like their Facebook activity, they would be able to predict credit worthiness and you know pro- probability of default with much more precision than using um, just uh, the traditional credit file. But do you know why that is? Is there some kind of theory behind this? Is like I, you know if somebody posts a lot of pictures of them out drinking fraternizing yeah. with friends does that indicate that a lack of credit worthiness like what what's the yeah what's the evidential yeah. basis for it? Is it or is it just you know they're aggregating lots of data and the machine learning system comes up with some kind of prediction and it seems to work what's yeah 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 so i think this is sort of just a, like question about big data and ml more generally right like how much of it is grounded in theory and some kind of causal explanation, how much of it just based on sort of probably like probabilistic based on correlation. I think it's a bit of both. And for some of the kind of patterns uh, or the decision rules that a, that a system learns, there is some, there is an explanation, there's a kind of like logical or causal like pathway that would say, okay, well, if a person, um, you know, posts a lot of 
makes a lot of posts that show that they, um, I don't know, like have health problems or like drink a lot or whatever it is. And say you're doing this in an insurance context, like presumably they are more likely to need medical help. And so like th that you can understand that particular example. But there are other cases where it's not like obvious what the causal pathway is, but um, just in terms of like predictive success, it's a very good predictor or, you know, um, a lot of credit scoring has been like probabilistic and based on correlations for a long time. Not every not every variable that's been used in credit scoring models, like even, you know, going back in time has has had like a causal model underlying it. Yeah, so I guess I might come back to some questions about the way in which the technology works, because I guess like one concern I would have about it would be the danger of maybe taking out face value claims that people who want access to this data make, you know, as to whether that actually is useful for them for making um, credit determinations. That's that's one question. Then there's another question about the kind of ethicality of it. But I mean, before we get into that debate about the ethics of this, the kind of negative side of this, let's say, what are the potential advantages of this form of technological innovation? Um, I think you know you talk in one of your papers about potential advantages in terms of allocative efficiency and distributional fairness. You know, those are you know fancy concepts. What what do they mean first, and then we can see think about how the technology might help to achieve those those goals. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I, I I use some you know more economic uh, sort of economic terms, um, but I think maybe an example will be more useful to illustrate it. But so just to to define them, so allocative efficiency refers to just basically the efficient allocation of capital through, in this case, consumer lending. So ensuring that capital is allocated just to the most you know valuable projects in the least cost manner. So that's just a technical definition. And then distributional fairness, well, you know, referring to fairness or equality or alternatively inequality between different social groups um, in accessing credits. That could mean in terms of the um, the, the the terms of the credits, uh, so interest rate, um, et cetera, um, and other aspects as well, like are they discriminated against in, in marketing, targeted marketing, et cetera. Um, and maybe an example will illustrate um, the kind of benefits of um, of algorithmic credit scoring on both of these benchmarks. So if you take the example of the consumer I mentioned earlier, who is a thin file, right, or a no file even, someone who doesn't have much of a credit history, a traditional marker of um, credit worthiness, and um, has therefore got, been given a low credit score um, because of their lack of, of traditional credit data. So they're going to be charged a high interest rate for borrowing. They may even be denied credit from certain lenders. As a result, they may be forced to rely on more expensive, um, unregulated forms of credit, um, such as payday lending. Um, but, but that's not to say, as I said before, this is not this is not to say that this consumer is uncreditworthy or, um, or that that reflects their actual credit risk. It's just that they lack the information to prove it. So what algorithmic credit scoring um, and particularly the use of alternative data and machine learning and related techniques to analyze this data offers um, is really the possibility to more accurately estimate the consumer's creditworthiness and therefore more accurately price credit. Um, so for, for, from, a, from an efficiency point of view, that um, is a gain, but it's also a gain from um, a distributional fairness perspective because thin file uh, and no file borrowers typically are 
you know, uh, from the, the most disadvantaged uh, groups of society, often um, uh, minority groups. So um, by improving access to credit and, you know, what flows from access to credit in terms of um, access to other opportunities, um, you're improving um, or correcting some of the pre-existing inequality between um, different social groups. And so, I mean, do you do you buy those arguments? Do you think that's true that it does help to achieve these aims? Is there evidence to suggest that the, the technology does assist with both of these goals? Yeah, so there's definitely been um, quite a bit of uh, empirical data um, showing improved prediction of um, creditworthiness or like probability of default um, using certain machine learning techniques. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a bit of a, um, I guess, a, a comparability problem with these studies because, well, what do you mean by machine learning? What data are you using? So there's a lot of like heterogeneity between uh, what is being assessed and what we mean by algorithmic credit scoring. But leaving that aside, I think that there is quite a bit of evidence, um, both um, theoretical and actual, showing that using these techniques, you can more more accurate, accurately predict um, creditworthiness. Um, on the on the fairness side, I think it's a mixed. Um, I mean, there's also there are other risks which we can come on to. But on the fairness side, I think there's like different. There's a there's a mixed mixed evidence. So there is empirical evidence showing that by using you know what we can call algorithmic credit scoring, so machine learning, alternative data, um, you can uh, remove reduce discrimination and loan origination, um, largely due to like biases of human you know lending officers. Um, but that you would increase um, like the disparity in uh, lending um, interest rates because you can you because you now have more information not just positive but also negative and that that disparity tends to penalize uh, minority groups more than others so that's not that's not really a fairness gain but depends what you mean by fairness yeah one of the concerns about machine learning technologies and these kind of predictive analytics technologies in other domains is that they seem to reinforce existing biases or stereotypes. I mean, this has been a major concern in the criminal justice sphere, for example. I mean, is there, are there risks here about discrimination? I think I have heard of some concerns about discrimination with algorithmic scoring in the past. Um, I mean, what's the kind of evidence or examples of this, if there are any out there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think, again, there's a couple of different types of um, discrimination risk. Um, so people will be aware of the Apple credit card, um, I guess, debacle last year, where um, a couple of high profile tech people said, you know, this credit card is racist, uh, sorry, um, sexist, because my wife got a um, my wife got a lower credit limit, despite having a um, so the, the person in question said, uh, said this, uh, having um higher credit score and um, I think Steve Wozniak came out with something similar um, so there um, you know the, the question is like well was was it really sexist and why was it offering um, different um, uh, credit limits and assessing credit worthiness differently for two potentially similarly situated individuals apart from um, gender so um, that I think was an example of biases in the data, the training data used to build uh, or whatever uh, credit scoring algorithms they were using. Um, so it may have been that um, typically the husband is taking out the large loan in their own name. Um, and so there's a kind of bias in the data, which maybe shows that the that women have, haven't got like as, um, as long a history with handling um, 
large large uh, loans. Um, I don't know if there was ever actually a, an official explanation other than um, Goldman Sachs, who who issues the card, um, saying that well, our um, algorithm is actually our credit algorithms are gender blind, and that's a really interesting response actually because it really speaks to some of the problems in our existing approaches to anti discrimination or regulation of discrimination. Um, the fact that the the algorithm did not take into account gender does not mean that it can't discriminate on the grounds of gender, um, particularly because as you know there are proxies for gender, so it could easily have just been um, associating, making decisions based on proxies for gender. Um, and also just taking out gender is not always that helpful because it means you can't then detect um, but, uh, potential discrimination and potentially correct that discrimination because you just don't have enough data to, to know. Um, uh, to know. Um, so, so that's kind of one example of um, how these scoring algorithms could be um, leading to discrimination or unfair outcomes where there are, there are sort of biases in the data. I think the more sticky questions are around kind of um, like sort of structural discrimination, historical discrimination, and to the extent that that's reflected in the training data, then how and should uh, private entities in particular be responsible for correcting for that, um, which is clearly a, a much deeper you know, philosophical and political question. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that so the similar debate comes up then in the in the criminal justice sphere, which I'm more familiar with, which is the claim that you know, these risk prediction scores are race blind. But you know, again, they they use data or inputs that are are proxies for race, and so a similar concern arises. Um, but as you point out, there's an interesting question here as to whether we actually want them to be blind with respect to these characteristics, because actually allowing them access to that information might enable us to detect patterns of discrimination that might otherwise have been forgotten or overlooked. And and this is an argument that some people have made, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that, that's discrimination. I mean, what are the other risks here with these kinds of systems? I guess the obvious one would be privacy risks, particularly if we accept that kind of slogan from earlier on that all data is credit data. I think, you know, Personally, I wouldn't be too happy if I thought that my financial service provider was scraping through all my online history to figure out my creditworthiness. Um, yeah, what, what are the, the fears about this aspect of the technology? Yeah, so I, I think the privacy risks are probably um, the least theorized aspect of um, algorithmic credit scoring, which, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know why, but um, this is the area that I um, am giving, I'm putting most of my attention to. Um, certainly, so there, there are privacy risks due to just what is inherent in this, um, you know, this, uh, this process, which is that you're using a lot of data to, um, to understand a person's credit worthiness and, and make lending decisions on that basis. So, so the inherent collection, pervasive collection of data, um, kind of the broader su surveillance apparatus to which it belongs, because clearly, you know, you're also relying on the collection of data by many other um, organizations and entities. Um, it, it seems to be inherently privacy um, diminishing. Um, and, and you know, there are different dimensions to that. To the extent that we think of privacy as being fundamentally about personal autonomy, then there are questions about whether, um, you know, uh, individuals, consumers are losing control over their identity, over, you know, the ability to shape um, their their financial identity and sort of therefore their 
larger identity because um, access to credit and finance is such a large part of it. Um, but, uh, well, I didn't, you know, maybe the individualistic uh, autonomy paradigm isn't the right one for understanding and regulating um, you know, increasingly data-driven societies. It, it seems to me that trying to control all of our data is some, something of a Sisyphean task. And um, maybe we need to be able to trust, uh, to better trust the organizations that handle our data, which demands that they be held to a higher duty of care. Okay, and so how how can we do this? I mean, how can law or regulation play a role in, in addressing some of these risks? Uh, how can we maybe build a, a better version of the system? Right, right. So so we need to find a, a kind of better balance, a better normal. Um, I mean, it's clearly there are, you know, from our discussion, it's clear that there are both benefits and risks. And um, the question is how to really find the, the, a good balance. Um, I think regulation can definitely help. It isn't the whole solution. Um, and I think it's important to realize that there are already already laws in place that uh, regulate um, credit al- algorithmic credit scoring. There is a kind of existing regulatory framework, includes consumer credit law, data protection law, anti-discrimination law. Um, not, it's not that they're all um, impotent. They're just uh, maybe in some cases under-enforced and some aspects need to be um, improved. So, for example, with respect to the duty of care for data processors uh, or the standard um, for authorizing data processing, I mean, a lot of data processing takes place on the basis of uh, what of consent or contractual consent um, or in, you know, informed consent. But I think we we recognize that in datafied consumer credit markets, which are characterized by steep asymmetries of information and power, um, informed consent is a bit of a legal fantasy. Uh, so maybe we need to shift away from that towards more data processing on the grounds of legitimate interest, which already applies to certain, certain data processes. Um, so that's one way in which we can improve on the existing regulatory framework. Can, um, can I just come in? So can you just explain to people that distinction? So the informed consent versus the legitimate interest ground for processing data, um, what, what would count as a legitimate interest here? Well, so for example, uh, consumer ref- uh, credit agencies or uh, consumer uh, reference aid, uh, authorities, so I'm confusing terms, um, credit reference agencies, sorry, um, like Experian and Equifax, in order to collect consumer data as they do in order to construct uh, and to build our credit reports, they they do it on the grounds of legitimate interest. So it's seen as a kind of um, a, a sort of uh, a legitimate ground, a public interest ground to a certain extent uh, for enhancing the efficiency of credit information markets and uh, consumer credit markets more generally. Um, I think in the context of, say, for example, Google collecting our data, rather than having us, you know, click yes on a terms of service that nobody reads, um, but yet that qualifies as informed consent, um, a a sort of system under which Google is almost held to a kind of fiduciary duty of care, um, which is a higher duty of care to act in the best interest of the consumer means that, okay, they might collect it and perhaps collecting data and processing data is 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 in, unavoidable for the kind of business that they carry out. But if they are going to use it, the decisions that they make with that data need to be in the consumer's best interest. Yeah, no, I, think, I just think it's important to make that point because uh, you know, people oftentimes interpret the European uh, data protection law as being grounded in consent. This is, a, a, I think, a common misconception. It's not purely consent-based 
rationale for processing data. There are other grounds on which people can justify the processing of data that are actually maybe more protective of individuals than informed consent, which, as you pointed out, can be easily hacked or abused, right? Right, exactly. So yeah, so exactly. That it's not. This is back to the point that it's not like we need to reinvent the wheel. Like we have already thought about different grounds for processing. It's embedded. It's already established in law. Um, but maybe we just need to make better use of those uh, stricter grounds. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is a constant problem when it comes to technology and the risks it poses or the concerns it poses, like from a legal or regulatory perspective. Which is that do we need? lots of technology-specific laws, or do we actually have enough kind of general legal principles and rules in place that we can, it's just a question of transposing them onto the new technology and realizing how they apply to the new technology? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And um, I think that one that has troubled people for, for, for a long time. Um, I think there are ways of supplementing general laws with more uh, context or technology-specific guidelines or regulations, and um, those are also easier to adopt and implement. They're more nimble, whereas you know, traditional law or primary laws adopted by parliament, that's a very lethargic and slow process. Um, yeah, I think that at the kind of sectoral level, so within the context of, for example, consumer credit regulation, which is much more um, specific and the law, the rules are also more specific as opposed to data protection or you know, constitutional privacy rights, which are much more general. Um, and within the context of consumer credit law uh, un under the Financial Conduct Authority's um, purview, we could be a lot more specific about the responsibilities, for example, of a credit, a, a credit uh, provider um, in terms of the privacy of, um, of its customers. Um, and I make some suggestions for how the existing uh, regulatory framework um, for consumer credit could be improved in this way. Uh, before we move on from consumer credit, I mean, is there anything else here? We, we've spoken largely here about credit scoring, I guess, and access to credit. Are there other kinds of technologies we should be on the lookout for? Anything else that's interesting from your perspective? Uh, within consumer credit? Yes, within consumer credit specifically. Just curious. I mean, yeah, I think so. The the under the technologies that underlie um, uh, algorithmic credit scoring, of course, are used in different ways. So you know, you've got machine learning and alternative data being used um, to improve financial advice, advice and wealth management, uh, which is has often been called robo advice. Um, more generally, these processes are sort of speeding up the customer experience. Um, uh, improving fraud detection process. So that, that they are like, they are kind of general purpose within the context of consumer finance and finance more generally. Um, there's a lot of promise again for all of these. There are risks um, again. Um, but but I think that, um, you know, to, to understand sort of the true impact of these technologies, you just sort of cast a much broader lens. Yeah, I wanted to move on to another uh, paper that you wrote with Carl Ullman, I think. Mm -hmm. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. So it was about the implications of the demise of big tech platforms. So this is a bit of a, a pivot away from consumer credit per se. Um, and I, I thought it was a, a kind of fascinating insight into a problem that I haven't really thought that much about, but which is kind of obvious when you read it, right? Or it seems like this is something we should take more seriously. So first of all, like, what do you mean by a big tech platform? in this context i guess you know facebook is the main example that you use in in the paper so like why is that a big tech platform why is it so important and significant in the modern world that might be stating the obvious to people but it's probably worth being precise about it 
Yeah, I mean, quite simply because it's the largest and the most data rich uh, social media platform uh, that we have right now. Um, and so from our perspective, gives rise to the, the, the sort of most significant, impactful um, ethical consequences in the event, not only, but in the event particularly that it was to to close or, part, or partly shut down. And what would be some other examples of big tech platforms out there? Would, would Amazon count given the volume of data and information they collect about consumers, Alibaba, places like that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we we focus on social media platforms for the purposes of this paper because of um, just the, some of the sort of idiosyncrasies of of, of social media and um, the implications for kind of public discourse that you that you find on those and you wouldn't find on a platform like Amazon. But of course, more broadly, you could talk about big tech, and even more broadly, you could pretty much talk about the whole economy because uh, essentially, data is you know the fuel or will be the fuel of of the economy and um, most companies are going to be data rich. Uh, Facebook just happens to be especially data rich already. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about this either, but just curious as to whether, you know, there's some silent or hidden actors in this data economy as well, you know, uh, data brokers and platforms. Would they would they also be uh, something that we should be paying attention to when it comes to thinking about these large platforms? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I said, so like the the specifics of this paper are more about like social media, but sure, yeah. more generally about well, what happens when a company that holds a ton of our data goes down or closes and there's no access, so on. Um, there's there's so many companies you should be thinking about. Any company that has a customer loyalty scheme has a lot of personal data. Um, airlines. So in the context of the COVID. Um, pandemic, um, a number of retail companies, and this has obviously you know, been going on for some time, have closed down. A lot of airlines are closing down. We should be thinking a little bit about what's happening to all that data, like all of your you know, loyalty points at uh, whatever grocery store and whatever your um, you know, airline club points, whatever they are. I mean, there's a lot of personal data um, in that. Uh, where is that data going when these companies go down? Right now, the framework, and in those cases, I'm talking about insolvency. We're not really talking about insolvency for Facebook, but there isn't really a very robust um, framework for managing data on insolvency, especially in, in this country. Yeah, I mean, let's work with the example of Facebook, though. As you say, social media platform with a lot of control over or influence over public discourse and political discourse and that, that's what seems to make it particularly significant yeah. now so the concern here is that facebook might fail it might go down it might collapse in some sense and obviously this has happened to some tech platforms in the past you know i i remember things like bebo and myspace which were relatively large platforms back in the day essentially going defunct I guess parts of them were bought off by other um, actors in the end. Um, is Facebook likely to suffer a similar fate? Is it not different? Is it kind of too big to fail? Yeah, I think so. It's a great question. Um, I think it is in many respects too big to fail. Like it's clearly not going to go into insolvency anytime soon. It's been growing user numbers, profitability year year on year. Um, and it has this kind of like like you know quasi monopoly status where it, it it would be hard for it to to um, go away. So maybe in that respect it's different from the Friendsters and the um, 
you know, Yahoo groups or what was it, GeoCities or whatever it was that went down, you know, say in the um, early 2000s. So, um, yeah, it is different uh, in that respect, but we're not just focused and we're not actually focused on that sort of larger insolvency scenario, but more so on the kind of um, uh, the closure of part of the platform and particularly the newsfeed platform. So to the extent, if, if, you know, you can think back to, for example, Google shutting down Google Plus, Right. So okay, Google Plus did not have quite the level of success as um, the as Facebook's you know, newsfeed or the main platform. But in the event that that happens, um, what does it mean for the, sort of the archive of sort of human history that has been built on this platform? What does it mean for all that data? Where does this data go? How do we access it? How do we access our sort of shared um, you know, history, really? I mean, if you were to also... I mean, reflect on it. If between this time five years ago and the present day, do you think it's more or less likely that Facebook will collapse? I mean, are there kind of scandals and pressures it's facing, given its outsized role in political and public discourse, making it more likely that it's going to to collapse in the near future, or like not not collapse, but as you say, suffer from some kind of uh, terminal decline or um, contraction or uh, shutting it or shutting down parts of it or something like that is is that more likely to happen now than it was in the past I think it's hard to say I mean um, you know it, it it's I think that the sort of end of Facebook is really not anywhere near this is like a high impact but low probability event um, but what is I think more plausible is the closure of part of it um, and light of changing social media usage trends in light of regulatory um, changes and kind of regulatory pressures. So social media moving more towards ephemeral messaging, video videos. So maybe that would mean a shift towards uh, more kind of TikTok style um, social media networking as opposed to this very public kind of uh, bulletin board type um, newsfeed. Um, and then obviously, you know, we're all aware of the regulatory pressures that it's facing from um, the competition or antitrust perspective, from the um, misinformation, from the uh, kind of hate speech or sort of uh, free, the sort of public discourse perspective, and then obviously from the political uh, intervention perspective. I don't know if any of those would actually lead to the platform closing completely, uh, the, the company going down completely, or or disappearing. Um, it also it also has established such scale that uh, you know it's unclear. It has this kind of monopoly, right? Like who who will replace it and who can replace it? Um, those are sort of hypothetical questions. If there was a serious contender, then it would it would start to be a more plausible um, uh, outcome. Right. But so in your paper with Carl, you focus on what would be the potential ethical risks and harms associated with this happening. And you talk in particular about there being four main stakeholders in an entity like Facebook and the different harms that they might face. So maybe you could run through those four different stakeholders and the problems that might arise for them in this hypothetical eventuality. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so we identify these um, what we think are sort of four main um, ethical stakeholders in, in you know, Facebook's closure um, as existing users, non-users, dependent communities and future generations. Um, so maybe I can talk briefly about each of those in turn. Um, so by existing users really quite simply mean people, anyone, any living user or group of users um, on the main Facebook platform and who continues to maintain um, a Facebook profile um, or page. Um, 
I think here, you know, for, from our perspective, the ethical harms due to the closure of that platform arise not just from the loss of access to that platform, um, but from future harms um, due to loss of control over our data and how those data are used. Um, you know, partly this depends on what Facebook decides to do with the data. So does it decide to delete them? Um, does it decide to redeploy the data and in other parts of the Facebook um, family of companies? Um, so, so, so those are kind of the main um, harms for the perspective of existing users. Um, and I should say that these stakeholder categories are overlapping and kind of um, like nested in some ways. So that, that you know, a, a um, dependent community can include an existing user. Um, but the, so the second category is non-users. So those are people who have never or no longer used Facebook and would, if, if they no longer use it, they would have had to have deleted their account as opposed to deactivating it. Um, and it also includes people who don't act, have never actually had an account, but um, whose Facebook uh, nevertheless collects data from because they, those people use websites that embed Facebook services, um, as well as people who are tracked by proxy, so um, children because their parents are sharenting, um, or um, people like the relatives of people who do have um, uh, Facebook accounts. And then we particularly focus on deceased users, which. Um, I think Carl, Carl and um, David Watson and another colleague have written about previously is, is a growing group, a growing user group, if you like. Um, and a question of, well, what happens to the data, again, of deceased users, particularly since there is significantly less protection for the, the rights of uh, the data protection rights specifically of deceased users, um, at least under UK law. Um, thirdly, we, we, we address the sort of the, the plight of dependent communities. And by this, we really mean um, industries and communities that have developed around Facebook and sort of depend on its existence to flourish. Um, you know, I think in, in this regard, we're more focused on um, like uh, media ecosystems um, and communities in, in largely developing countries where Facebook um, has it's sort of almost synonymous with the Internet. Um, what would happen to those communities um, if Facebook goes down? How would they communicate? How would they access services and so on? Um, and then future generations. And here we're interested in the archival value of Facebook, um, you know, for understanding the origins and the dynamics of our um, digital society. Um, it's, it, is, it is actually the largest archive of human behavior in history. Um, Individual data might be relatively inconsequential, but in, in, in the aggregate, this is a digital artifact of of considerable um, significance. And the closure raises question, potential closure would raise questions about well, who controls um, our history and uh, who um, and um, how can we access it and how can we protect it? Right. So if, if we accept that this is um, something you know we should take seriously, maybe it's a, it's a low probability, high risk event, um, and as you say. It's not necessarily the, the collapse of the entire platform, but the the shuttering of some aspects of it. What should be done to address these potential harms or risks associated with with that outcome? Yeah, so um, we identify four different options, which sort of imperfectly map onto our four stakeholder categories. Um, I can talk about each of those briefly in turn. So. Um, we, we suggest that we need to do more to strengthen the legal protection for the data and privacy of deceased users. Um, as I said, existing law is weak, um, but the GDPR interesting doesn't exclude the possibility for this. And certain countries like Denmark um, and Spain, I believe, do enshrine a lot more protection for deceased users, um, primarily through their next of kin. Um, 
So that's one that's one area that I think um, needs more more attention, more research. I know that this we sort of this paper really sets out a research agenda. We um, have written it to start a debate as opposed to offer different you know definitive answers. Um, Secondly, also strengthen the um, protection of users from ethical harms due to the handling of the data in the event that a, um, a company, or in this case, you know, uh, Facebook, a social media platform, shuts down. Um, and I think you know there are different ways that we could think about doing this. Again, we need to we need to think a bit more closely. But there are mechanisms that, going back to what we were talking about before, um, I think increase and and um, and sort of heighten the uh, the responsibilities of data processors. So maybe um, a structure like the, like a data trust, which would which would hold you know Facebook as a trustee um, to a much higher um, duty a standard of care um, with respect to the handling of that data. So it may mean, for example, that pursuant to that trust, they could not um, use uh, a user's a Facebook user's data, they could not sell a Facebook user's data, for example, to an actor who could reasonably be expected to misuse it. And obviously, it, this is imperfect, but it would certainly improve um, on the status quo. Um, we also think there should be stronger incentives for Facebook to share insights and preserve um, historically significant data for future generations. Um, and we contemplate something that might might look like a digital version of UNESCO's World Heritage um, protected status. And then the last um, suggestion, which um, is, is quite a broad one, um, is to develop a regulatory framework for what we call systemically important technological institutions or cities. Um, we draw a little bit on the concept of CIFIs uh, from the financial sort of post-crisis financial context. Um, the idea being that, and this is sort of your point about too big to fail, which is that, you know, well, they they are in many society, many communities providing systemically important services, essential services, um, and we need a framework that regulates them as um, natural monopolies in some ways, in the way that we do utilities and other in essential critical infrastructures, um, which maybe goes a bit against the grain of of the antitrust um, narrative, which wants to potentially break it up. Um, but uh, this, as I said, is a much broader recommendation um, that we that we at least draw attention to in this paper. I'm just curious on the the penultimate or the second to last recommendation mm -hmm. there on um, legal mechanisms to or control data, or maybe that was the second one that you outlined. Sorry, um, is is the assumption here that the existing framework under like the GDPR, with which gives certain kind of access and portability rights, is inadequate to address? this problem and is that because it places too much emphasis on the user or the provider of the data the, the individual as opposed to the company itself like what's the or i you know i don't want to assume an argument that you're not making but is, is it that it's there's concerns about the adequacy of the existing legislative framework yeah yeah definitely um again building on what we were discussing earlier um the gdpr has some bits in it that could be that are fine, but could need to be improved. And um, you know, the the standard of consent and this reliance on a kind of contractual private ordering for consumers to protect themselves is clearly inadequate when they have no idea what data is held on them or what decisions are being made. So this is the informational asymmetry point. Um, so you know, is consent enough? And then the point about um, like these kind of browse wrap agreements, where a consumer doesn't actually know what they're consenting to, but actually is signing away the right to their data being used for not just that service, but a whole family of services, means that in 
in the event of um, Facebook, say, closing newsfeed, as happened with Google shuttering Google+, it's not really clear what the obligations of that um, data processor are with respect to that data. Um, and then, and then more, more, uh, moreover, you know, you have this right of data portability, which is again very kind of, it's a sort of, you know, focuses on the user exercising their contractual rights to protect themselves. But the reality is that it it's not very effective. Um, first of all, not all users are aware of it. So that's just that's a kind of behavioral informational point. But secondly, you, it's not really uh, feasible. I mean, how all the data that we you know share with Facebook is commingled, it's reused, it's repurposed. You're not really getting all of your data or all of the inferences from your data, if we can include that in that in the category of data when you request uh, you make a data portability uh, or a data download request you don't even get photos in which you've been tagged but that you didn't upload so it's definitely incomplete um, and in our view unsatisfactory yeah i know those are good points to think about the uh, yeah the, the difficulty of of making that kind of right to data portability kind of meaningful in practice or, or that in a way that really does kind of pre- um, protect or enable access to, to user data because of this commingling and interaction problem and that's why we might need a more of a top-down approach or a top-down solution such as a, having a, a data trust um, maybe just in the last few minutes of our conversation we could touch on another issue that comes up in a, a paper that you wrote a few years back with um, several co-authors uh, thomas king maria rosario tadio and um, luciano floridi again i apologize if i got some of those pronunciations incorrect you wrote this um, interesting kind of overarching analysis or framework for understanding the phenomenon of AI crime. Um, maybe you could explain what you mean by that term in the in the paper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we defined AI crime as uh, criminal acts or emissions in which AI plays an essential role. So not, not, um, not necessary, but essential. Um, and we focus on crimes where AI is a contributory factor rather than AI being used to enforce or mitigate um, a crime. Yeah. Okay. So then, what, like, what do we need a kind of new framework for analyzing or understanding AI crime? Is AI, does it give Is it just a tool for performing traditional crimes? Does it give rise to new types of criminal offending? What might those be? Um, and how, yeah, should we be taking them seriously or not? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think as as you know, I think this is a consistent theme in our discussion that there are existing laws which uh, could be adapted or interpreted to accommodate AI crime. Um, but what that paper did was try to um, identify, you know, what are the kind of um, unique threats of AI crime that that require potentially novel legal um, and ethical um, responses, and we identified. A number of of uh, cross cutting threats and um, area specific threats. So cross cutting threats that we highlighted were emergence, um, liability, monitoring, um, and um, psychology. Um, so the emergence kind of refers to the fact that um, not all of a system, sort of a multi agent system's behavior, will be uh, can be anticipated or predicted um, by the designers or the developers. Um, and then, you know, liability, for example, um, referred to the fact that existing constructs of criminal liability might not be so easily applied to um, 
uh, AI crime. So, for example, the requirement for mens rea or a guilty mind um, or a voluntary, volu you know, an actus reus, um, which requires voluntariness. So if we think that, um, uh, you know, an AI agent, an artificial agent is not capable of agency or consciousness, then can we really find the guilty, the, the, the guilty mind, the mens rea? And if that's not the case, if that's if that's not possible, then do you is it appropriate to impute that to the nearest human actor? And so all sorts of questions around um, how we um, find liability or we attribute liability for AI crimes. It's not again, it's not that the existing contracts are, in, are inherently uh, weak um, or impotent, but that there are new questions that demand a rethinking and potentially a reinterpretation of them. Sorry, and what about the other kind of two cross-cutting issues you had? Um on monitoring and psychology what do what do those mean sorry okay so um and then in terms of monitoring and psychology which are the two other um cross-cutting threads so monitoring um where it overlaps to a certain extent with um liability but you know we're thinking of problems of attribution um and feasibility um particularly relating so attribution the problem that again you have the sort of emergence and, and autonomy to a certain extent of artificial agents uh, and a question of who um, can be can be held responsible for its for its actions um, and then the sort of complexity means that it's harder to necessarily trace back um, the actions or the um, maybe the the criminal act or harm to uh, a culpable a morally uh, a, a, an agent who can be held responsible um, for those um, those actions. Um, and then psychology sort of really was referring to um, the uh, kind of manipulation and um, the use of artificial agents to kind of um, to to gain trust from users, so to trick users and to make people vulnerable um, to manipulation, um, which um, I think, John, you've written a bit about this in the context of um like robotic robotic rape, I mean, we have we've cited your paper in in that paper. I remember. Yeah, that's right. So you do discuss um, some of my my work in that that paper. I mean, I, I suppose I would be interested to hear from you, uh, and if this is something that you've been thinking about or looked at, uh, like how this arises, let's say, in the financial context. Um, are there actual like examples of of concerns arising about liability in relation to? I don't know, algorithmic trading bots or something like this? I mean, have, have some of these issues that you identify in that paper actually emerged in, in practice in, for example, the financial markets? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, um, again, just at a very high level, um, there's definitely been cases around um, price fixing and um, collusion in the context of algorithmic trading, uh, market manipulation, um, um you know, in, in sort of in in the context of high frequency trading or kind of um, automated markets, um, certainly I'm not too sure about the latest case law on this. <clears throat> I mean, in general, I mean, what do you think needs to be done to address these issues, or do you have any thoughts on how we can um, kind, of, kind of address those problems with with emergence or liability or monitoring? in practice yeah absolutely um so i think you know, emergence um of course like emergence you know all, all complex systems have a degree of emergence but um i think there are sort of legal and technological solutions um to you know prevent um 
uh, harms due to due to emergence. So, and and this kind of links back to what we were talking about before as well. I mean, um, one approach might be to just sort of put a hard limit on the capabilities of an artificial agent or um, you know multi-agent system um, that that prevents. You know, maybe limits its autonomy, limits what it can be done. Um, there's obviously a lot of discussion around um, human in the loop, human on the loop, meaning um, having uh, a human to um, to check or to verify or to authorize um, certain decisions, and particularly like in the context of autonomous we- weapon systems, um, where certainly there's been a suggestion from from uh, from several people to say that well, um, we should not we should not allow we should not permit. Um, a certain, you know, a high level of, of autonomy in the context of international warfare, which is that would be um, that there's a hard limit to how much we can use um, these technologies in that context. Um, so I think, you know, you'd asked about, I think at some point you'd asked about whether we should ban technologies and maybe this is an area where banning is seen to kind of reflect the kind of moral consensus. Um, I don't know if anything in the financial context hits the level of, of, a, of a ban or a moratorium. Um, I mean, what, it, what about, uh, I mean, some people have kind of said this in relation to, let's say, high-speed trading, that maybe yeah. there needs to be a speed limit put on market trades. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so you have kind of like circuit breakers and, and um, uh, those sorts of approaches that certainly um, do do reflect the sort of view that you need to put a hard limit, you need to kind of intervene in the system's uh, capabilities. Um, so yes, in that context, yes, but um, perhaps I'm referring more to consumer consumer finance context. Um, but okay, so yeah, so um, okay, having this sort of hard limit, limiting the capabilities and capacities of the system. Um, I think we you know we also talked about in, sort of building in compliance, and um, to some extent, this sort of goes back to discussions of sort of ethical algorithms or like, you know, how can you build in morality or or ethical values into the system? So could you have a kind of runtime legal compliance layer or um, make, you know, make uh, make non-compliance just impossible? So if there are certain things or certain acts that are uh, categorically wrong, either morally or like they're under a particular legal system, they're criminalized, um, that they are not permissible that so that you program the system that way i don't know that that's necessarily a solution where you have emergent systems and as the definition suggests all the, the sort of behavior isn't necessarily predictable but um there are clearly um sort of levels of emergence and certain certain um certain uh behavior certain outcome can be um sort of more uh, strictly uh, limited um, you could also, you know, ensure better testing um, and simulation of of um, artificial agents before they're deployed, sort of um, in the wild. Um, so that's kind of the, so those are some of the the ideas we explored in the context of limiting harm due to emergence. Um, liability. I thought we um, offered some interesting an interesting exploration um, of a few different models, again, drawing on existing kind of liability constructs and applying them to the context of AI crime. So, um, you know, you so there's obviously the, the possibility that you directly hold an artificial intelligent, uh, artificial agent uh, liable. The, the problem there, of course, is the lack of uh, legal personhood, at least under existing law. Um, but the liability could be imputed then to uh, to others who are involved um, in in a similar way, uh, you know, to to say that the developer or the designer or the user could be res- held responsible. Um, or, for example, it could be you know an AI system could be 
housed in a corporation and in the same that we, way that corporations are, are, are artificial legal entities, um, liability could kind of flow through that uh, corporate construct. Other, other constructs that we, that we thought about um, were command responsibility, which sort of comes from the military context, and that would hold people who have knowledge of, of the crime responsible. Um, and then alternatively, um, the standard could be those who are negligent, um, so have not taken um, a reasonable care to prevent the harm. So um, that could be holding the developers or the designers, et cetera, responsible. Um, the, the paper is is, uh, is a literature review, and so it draws these draws these um, uh, models from the the literature um, uh, itself. Um, but but certainly this sort of offers a kind of a range of of options for for building a liability uh, framework in the context of these complex uh, and emergent multi-agent systems. So, uh, yeah, and so then in monitoring psychology equally, so for monitoring, um, which overlaps slightly with the discussion of emergence, but um, you know, again, could we use social simulation to detect crime patterns? Are there ways of kind of leaving some kind of trail, like a breadcrumb trail for traceability, like fingerprinting in um, AI software or watermarking? Um, could there be a way of just sort of making the system self-regulatory in a way, like um, maybe using uh, GANs or building some kind of automatic feedback loop between um, a moral agent and a you know, moral patient so that, um, you know, for example, a social media site could learn and adjust to the normativity of its behavior from um, the market perspective. So you kind of um, have this built-in feedback loop. Um, yeah, so th these are some of the... These are some of the um, uh, examples that we explored. Yeah, no, I think I think it's useful to have that kind of review and overview of the different options out there. And I think the the point that is important is the sense that there, okay, there might be these new problems or issues raised by the, the technology, but actually, we also do have lots of constructs out there in the legal system, criminal law, and military law, whatever, to address some of these issues as well. And I, I mean, I've never, I've I'm a little bit of a skeptic of the kind of responsibility gap problem that a lot of people talk about, and this has been a theme in some of the recent entries in this series of podcasts. Uh, and I suppose the way in which you can use something like a, a corporate liability construct, let's say a corporation owns a self-driving car and then the corporation is liable for the, the actions of the car. I mean, that, it seems like that's a solution to, to some of these these issues, and it's not an unusual construct for the legal system to use either. It's something that, that we've been using for, for quite some time. Although, you know, I do also accept that there are differences and distinctions to be drawn here between criminal liability and civil liability and the, the notion of criminal liability for the actions of a corporation are, are a little bit more contentious, both kind of morally and philosophically. Absolutely. Um, but we do also have corporate crime and, you know, some experience thinking about that jurisprudence um, that deals with that. Uh, and again, I, I haven't um, delved deep enough to, to figure out whether it's a useful enough analogy, but there does seem to be something there. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, there are lots of places that the countries that do have some kind of corporate criminal liability, um, but I, the, it still remains a somewhat more contentious form of corporate liability than civil liability, which is much more straightforward and routinely applied, right? Absolutely. And I think that's potentially one of the risks, um, one of the risks that we we thought about quite deeply going into writing this paper. And I think in my mind, it remains anyway, that 
is the, is the lack of any kind of suitable um, cult, you know, party to to carry the liability to hold to be made liable going to just result in a dilution of the um, the that level of responsibility. Um, so I'm not being very coherent, but um, the point being that if we you know, is the lack of any suitable criminal law construct just going to mean that we end up with a sort of um, a weaker a weaker um, regime that doesn't actually properly punish or um, hold responsible the the culpable activity yeah I, th- I think that is the main kind of philosophical concern that there's some kind of normative mis- mismatch here that there's a, a harm that seems to merit some kind of response and yet there isn't an, an appropriate target for that and as i say if people are interested in that topic i just did a, a long-ish interview with daniel tigard uh, that uh, discusses this in in, in some detail um, apart from that, I think maybe that's a, a good place to wrap up. And I'd just like to thank you for joining me for this conversation today, Nikita. Thanks so much, John. It was great fun.